He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who does not obey the Son, uh, it, excuse me, I am reading this crazily. He who believes on he who believes the Lord shall be saved, but he do, who does not obey the Son shall not be saved. But the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, we have believed in him that we might be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, now we come to study your word, to come to learn what you have revealed to us, what has been written down for the ages, that we might come to understand the absolute truth of your plan and of what you are doing in this age, in this church age, with this new entity, the church, the body of Christ, and the uniqueness spiritually of this entity of which we are a part. Father, we recognize that so little is really taught about this, so little is done in terms of truly probing the depths of these passages in Ephesians. And as we have done so, we are just come to, coming to an awareness that that we are unlike any believers of any other time in history, that there is a uniqueness, a distinctiveness, yet there is a glory about what you are doing with the church that, as Paul concludes in this section, is beyond anything we can imagine. It's beyond anything we could ask or think, and you have elevated us so much in putting us in Christ. You have made us alive together in him. You have raised us. And you have seated us together with him in the heavenlies. And we can not exploit that to its fullest at all. It is just phenomenal. So help us as we study to understand and gain a greater glimpse of who we are in Christ and what our mission is and what you have commissioned us to do in this church age. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, and what we are looking at this morning is, if I've got the right, yeah, I do have the right slides up here, okay. What we are looking at this morning is, again, the mystery doctrine, that mystery revelation that God gave to the Apostle Paul, and not just to him. I think there's certain branch of older dispensationalists that talk as if, this mystery doctrine was given to Paul and to Paul alone. But what we have seen in our study already is that in verse 5, that it has been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, plural. 
not just to the Apostle Paul, although he is distinctly the missionary, the apostle to the Gentiles. That's his primary responsibility, but that didn't exclude Jews. He always went someplace to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And Peter himself, who was designated in Galatians 2 as the uh, apostle to the Jews, uh, is the one who opened the door to the Gentiles to entry into the church, the body of Christ. But this was something that was unforeseen, unexpected uh, in the Old Testament. And it is something that is completely new. And so this section we're looking at really goes from verse 1 down to verse 13. But it's important for us to understand why Paul is saying these things. It always gives us a little glimpse into the way Paul thought and the way Paul taught is that that we think today in such superficial ways about biblical application. And it, it, we really don't probe the depths of application as, as we have seen. And during this time where we're, this year of 2020, where we have seen the pandemic with the COVID virus, we're seeing the election year, we are seeing things shut down completely. We've seen once already the uh, stock market drop precipitously and then, then recover. We've seen partial recoveries. We've seen churches shut down. We've seen in some states that are dominated by Democrat politicians and have been for uh, 15, 20, 30, 40 years that they have a heavy hand in restricting churches to meet. People need to recognize there's a connection between that action and the worldview and belief system of that political party. It isn't. You haven't seen this with those states where they're dominated by Republicans. Now, that doesn't mean they're the, they're the best. It just means they're better. We have a constitution in this nation and a Declaration of Independence that recognizes God-given human rights. And yet these are being negated now by little tyrants in state governments and some in city governments. And this election is really significant because we don't know what's going to happen come Tuesday. We may not even know Tuesday night who the next president's going to be or in some of these other offices. We may not know for some days. There are threats. It's interesting. Everything that I read in terms of original source material that's documented on the Internet is coming from radical left organizations. But, see, I read everybody. And when I read uh, the mainstream media, Politico, and others, they seem to never mention Antifa or Black Lives Matters or any of the other radical left organizations that are actually behind all of these riots, they, they say that it's all right-wing extremists. In fact, I had a lifelong friend call me a right-wing extremist the other day. Uh, I haven't changed any in 60 years, but what's happened is the country has moved to the left. But all of this just gives us an incredible sense of uncertainty. There's chaos in the world. There is uncertainty. What about God's plan? What's going on? Has God forgotten about us? 
And there are numerous times in life when things don't go the way we should. It may be a health crisis. It may be a relationship crisis. It may be a financial crisis. That there are so many different things that happen that we have our plan and we have our trajectory set and all of a sudden something happens and it seems like everything gets turned upside down and we're going in a completely different direction. And sometimes it doesn't appear that that God is really paying attention to us. He's a little bit distracted by what's going on in the Middle East or what's going on uh, in China or somewhere else. And so we tend to get discouraged. God's forgotten about us. I had a friend that I grew up with in, in here in Houston, a lifelong friend. We went to, um, uh, we had a similar background. We grew up in the same church. We did many things together. We both went to Camp Nile. We went to team class every night uh, at, at uh, in Bible class, and and we grew. But um, and we went off to college together. Spent some time together, and then he transferred to another school, and some years went by. And when he got into his 40s, he was began to focus on the fact that he really hadn't achieved what he wanted to achieve. And he was in a job that bored him to death, and he was absolutely miserable all the time, and he was unhappy. And rather than turning to the Lord to see, well, what are you doing with me? He got angry with God and bitter and spent the rest of his life just in, in deep anger and bitter antagonism toward God. That's why Paul's writing this part of the chapter, is he's trying to encourage those Ephesian believers that were being discouraged, tempted to be discouraged, because they thought that, well, if God is doing all these great things through the Apostle Paul, then Paul needs to be out traveling and going places and going here and there. And this is what Paul reminds them of at the beginning of the chapter. He says, for this reason, that is what he said before, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. And it is at this point that he's introducing this. And then you see by the long dash, the M dash there at the end, that he then diverts himself from what he was going to say. He, he introduces a new thought that seems like he has just been distracted and that he is going in a totally different direction. But the fact is, he comes back to this afterwards. So as we've seen, this shows us that everything between verse 3 and verse 12 is designed to tell something about who he is and what God is doing in his life that even though he's now in, in prison, has been for uh, three or four years, two years in Caesarea by the sea in Israel, and then he takes a ship to Italy, and in Rome he is under house arrest for two years, and people are thinking, you know, God needs to let him out so that, so that the church can expand, and Paul realizes wherever God has him, he's going to use him to expand the church, and that's what he's encouraging them with, so that everything in between is designed to go to this point in verse 13. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul was going to fulfill his ministry because he was under the sovereign direction of God. But they had thought that because he wasn't doing what they thought he should be doing, that somehow this would impact God's plan. Paul knew that God was in control. 
And that even though Paul or others may have thought there was a better way, God knew the best way. And so this digression between verses 2 and 12 is really giving us a new rationale for understanding when things go haywire from our perspective, but God is still still in control. And what he says uh, reinforces what we've learned before in Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good. God is working all things together for good. doesn't mean all things are good, but that even when horrible things happen, even when we may face antagonism from friends and family, even when there may be uh, persecution for the gospel, uh, you think about situations all over the world, we get this magazine called Voice of the Martyrs here at church. And you ought to read that sometimes and how many uh, places in the world the Christians' lives are in danger every single day sort of makes us realize it's not so bad here after all. The number of Christians that are being arrested and martyred in China is unbelievable. And yet it's never talked about on major news outlets, conservative or liberal. So you have to pay attention to these other ministries that are working in those areas. And what Paul does is he says that that God has revealed to us, to him, to the apostles, something new. That is what is called a mystery. It is uh, a teaching that was not made clear at all, wasn't even revealed in the Old Testament at all. God was silent. God had it in his secret council, and it wasn't revealed until the church age, and it was made known to the Apostle Paul and to the apostles. And we have to understand the, the significance of this whole section from 2 down through, down through 12, because what Paul is talking about is what God has given him. And in, uh, I don't have verse 2 up there, but in verse 2 he says, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation, actually I've translated that as administration or dispensing of the grace of God which was given to me for you. Now we'll talk more about that when we get down to um, uh, down into verse 7 of this first paragraph. But I pointed out that it's not about the dispensation of grace. It is not about grace. It is about the whole phrase. It's not each. It's not in any individual word. It's that whole phrase that he uses several times in here. The dispensation or the administration of the grace of God, which was given to me. It's that whole phrase that is. That is significant. And when you look at verse 7, as I pointed out when we first started the study, it says, of which, that is the gospel, of the gospel, I became a minister according to what? The gift of the grace of God which was given to me. It's that whole phrase that's important. It refers to his apostolic gift. And that is how Paul uses that. It relates to his apostolic commission his apostolic mission, and his apostolic message. That's all bound up in that, in that one phrase. And he is saying, this is what's important. And my, the mission that God gave me has not been hindered by the fact that I'm in prison. And so cheer up. And the same thing is true for us. What God is doing, as Jim pointed out, God's word is not being hindered. God's word is not bound. 
that that he is accomplishing many things, even though there's the lockdown. There are Zoom meetings and other things like that using the internet that's reaching people who otherwise might not have been might not have been reached. And so these things that appear to us to be roadblocks are just diversions to a better course. And God is taking us in that direction. And so uh, we need to change our thinking. So in verses 3 through 6, he talks about this mystery by revelation. We talked about revelation last time, that God is revealing something. Now, revelation is not something mystical. Revelation is not having some sort of uh, inner hot flash. And all of a sudden, Paul said, oh, I get it now. It's the communication of information. It is the disclosure of that which is veiled or concealed or hidden. Those are the words that are the opposite from the word used for revelation. And it's addressed to the intellect that he made known something. It's not a feeling. And it has to do with giving information that otherwise we couldn't get just by thinking about it, by further study, or anything else, it was kept in the secret counsel of God and was not given until uh, this church age. So I paraphrase that verse, as God made known to me, according to the standard of divine revelation, the mystery which was not made known to the human race as it has only now been revealed by the Holy Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So what we did last time, and I'm going to just summarize it a little differently today, we looked at the standards for divine revelation. And what we saw was that God made something specific known to Paul, and that, oh, this is what I was, I'll get to that review in a minute. And what was made known was called a mystery, that is something that had never been revealed. It was God's closely guarded secret. And the way it was made known was according to the standard of revelation. And that word means uh, revealing a disclosure or an unveiling. So we looked at uh, what the Bible teaches about divine revelation. I'm just going to hit a couple of high points to remind you that the basic word like apocalypsis has to do with uh, disclosing some information. The other word that's used to make known means to give information. So as I pointed out that revelation discloses information which is necessary to correctly understand and interpret the events of our lives and that we can't get it any other way. You're not going to reason your way to it. Paul didn't go off to the University of Tarsus and work on a Ph.D. on the uh, Hebrew Scriptures and suddenly come up with a breakthrough doctrine. Uh, it wasn't that way at all. He's not having any of those kinds of uh, insights. God had to reveal this to him specifically. So we learned that some information is only knowable through revelation. It's not available through reason, through logic, through experience, or empirical analysis. It is only knowable because God the Holy Spirit has revealed it to us through the Scriptures. And the third thing we saw is that God kept this secret from, all, from everyone since the creation of the world. Romans 16.25, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. And I keep emphasizing that because there are people who teach that some of this was known in the Old Testament. 
Just because God worked to the Jews and there were Gentiles who were saved doesn't mean that they understood any of this. This is a really strong, clear statement. This was not revealed at all in the Old Testament. And according to Ephesians 3.5, it is revealed by the Spirit to the apostles and prophets, as we see. It is revealed, that's our the fourth point of review, is to the apostles and prophets. And when he uses this phrase, the apostles and prophets at the end, what he is doing here is relating to the foundation of the church. In Ephesians 2.20, he stated, having been built. Now, the previous verse ends with the phrase, the household of God. That's not include, that does not include Old Testament believers at all. It is this new building. The term for household indicates a building that is in the process of being constructed. And that this is something new, and it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, not the individual prophets. It's not talking about them literally. They're not laid down physically, and this is being built on top of them. It is talking about what they taught, what they wrote, what was revealed to them. And so it is talking about the teaching of the scriptures. Now, in Roman Catholicism, you have a doctrine, the way they have treated it is makes it a false doctrine of apostolic succession. But in Roman Catholicism, it's a succession of people. But in the early church, they understood it to be a succession of truth, a succession of content, a succession of biblical doctrine. And that's what they said. What, what made it right was that it conformed to Scripture. And so this is the foundation was the apostles and prophets and what they taught. And you have this phrase given several times in this order. It's not prophets and apostles. But in Ephesians 2.20, it is apostles and prophets. And in Ephesians 3.5, it is apostles and prophets. And in Ephesians uh, 4.11, it's in that same order that God himself gave apostles and and some prophets, these spiritual gifts, it's in that order because he's talking about the church. He doesn't want us to confuse this, that these are Old Testament prophets. These are the apostles and the New Testament prophets. And the New Testament was written uh, mostly by apostles, but there's some that were not of the twelve, or Paul. And so there you have Mark, you have Luke, you have the writer of Hebrews, uh, you have these, uh, Luke also wrote Acts. Uh, you, you have these books that are written by non-apostles. Now, they were closely associated with apostles, but these would have been men who had the gift of being a New Testament prophet. And it is their writings, as this passage says, the New Testament apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, and that this mystery was revealed to apostles to his holy apostles and prophets. Now, another thing I want to draw your attention to in this verse uh, is the word that I have underlined, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. Now, if we stop there, we clearly understand it, that it wasn't made known at all to the sons of men. And then you have this little word, as. It's a, a comparative adverb. And the way we use it many times is in a sense where you're comparing 
degree or extent. So, you know, I might say sometime that um, that uh, Jim Myers is a missionary, but he's not a missionary like like John and Robin down in the the depths of the Amazon rainforest, where where they are working with the uh, Yanomami people down there, and it's extremely primitive. And that's what a lot of people think of as a missionary, somebody who's going into an untouched area, living down in the jungle, or whatever. Jim and Phyllis have all the or almost all the modern conveniences. And um, and that's not true at all. If you read those dispatches that uh, John and Robin put out, I mean, it's amazing what they have to do. They just had to carve their uh, flat space out in the jungle and tear down all the trees and build uh, their home. And they just deal with all kinds of things on a daily basis because they're in the heart of the jungle. So you have different kinds of missionaries. So Jim is one kind, but he's not a missionary in the same way that they are in the rainforest of the Amazon. It's a difference in degree or a difference in kind. Okay? But then uh, there's another way in which we use this, and this is called a restrictive sense where it's not comparing degree, it's comparing you have one thing and the thing that's being compared has nothing to do with the first one. So I could say most of you know Bryce is the uh, tech wizard behind the Dean Bible Ministries website. He knows all the stuff and software and everything related to running a, running a website. And I can say uh, uh, I can use a computer but I'm not a tech wizard as Bryce is. I'm not a tech wizard at all. Okay? So in that sense, you don't have two things where one is a greater degree of the other. One is one thing, and the thing that it's compared to is something else completely. And that is how the as is used in this verse. Uh, what Paul is saying here in other ages, it was not made known to the sons of men, and we could paraphrase it, but uh, it is now been revealed to the Spirit, or because it has, it causes a third sense you can use, but I think it's more comparative, as it has now been revealed. And it wasn't revealed at all in the Old Testament, but it has been revealed in the New Testament. And so what we see here is a very strong statement that there is this teaching that was kept in the secret counsel of God, and it's not revealed until the day of Pentecost. Christ actually began to reveal some of this a little bit the night before he went to the cross. But what God was going to do with the Gentiles isn't mentioned at all there. And what we see from our study of 11 to 22 in chapter 2 and what we've seen here is that God has a remarkable plan for bringing Jew and Gentile together in one, as one new man, one new body, and one temple, a new temple. So we have this new man, new body, new temple theme in 11 to 22 and that this is something that was never thought about before. It never even entered anybody's mind. That's why at the end of chapter 3, when Paul closes out in a doxological prayer, he says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think. It's beyond anything that we could have imagined. 
And as I've been pointing out in this study, is what this should do is radically transform the image we have, the sense we have of who we are as believers in Christ. It's, it, it's a really insipid concept to just think that, well, we're in Christ, that means we're going to go to heaven. That's barely touching it. We have been elevated to a position of aristocracy and royalty in terms of all of those who have believed. That God is making the church something distinctive. We are said to be in Christ. We are called the bride of Christ. We are called the body of Christ. That never happened with anybody before. And so we see this emphasis that comes out of what we studied in chapter uh, chapter 2 when talking about what happens when we're saved and what we are what happens to us when we are saved as we become this new as i pointed out from verse 10 a new creation a, and when god creates something it's perfect it's glorious it's beautiful it's incredible and there we say god makes us a new creation and so it's a masterpiece it's not just something that God did. It's not just simple workmanship. It is something that is extraordinary, something that is beautiful. And as it's pointed out in chapter 2, it is so that this will be manifest throughout all the ages in the future, what God has done for believers in this church age. And what he adds in verse 6, he says that the Gentiles should be, and then he uses these three terms should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Now, unfortunately and sadly, in the New King James translation, you really miss, we all miss, the significance of what he is saying. In each of these terms in the Greek, the words begin with this Greek preposition, soon which means together with. We have uh, seen that before, and I'll go there in just a minute. But so each of these terms should be translated, if possible, with words that indicate together with, or the best translation I've seen so far is the idea of fellow. Okay, but what it means is we have the same inheritance, we have the same body, and we have an identical participation in the promise of Christ, the same participation in the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile together, which never, ever happened before. So when we look at this and we see these three words, Soon, kleronomos, susomos, and sumedikos. It is that su at the beginning that that is that that uh, preposition that is prefixed to the to the word, and it indicates an extremely high position. These words are mostly synonymous, although there's slight overlapping of meaning and a slight distinction uh, in each one. But it ought to remind us of Ephesians 3, or excuse me, Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, remember, focused us on how God saved us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It started off identifying the fact that you Gentiles, 
You Gentiles were dead in your trespasses and sins. The death there meaning that they were alienated from the life of God. And then in verse 3, what, what Paul said was about we too, uh, the, indicating the Jews were just as spiritually dead and just as corrupt as the Gentiles. And then you get into verse 4, and verse 4 says, but now. That's the big contrast there, is but now. And we read, but now God, who is rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us. And that just introduced the subject of the sentence. And what what made this so great is, verse 5, he says, even when we were dead in trespasses, and then you have the subject of that verb comes from verse 4. It's God made us, what? Alive together. Jew and Gentile. And God made us alive together and raised us up together. Jew and Gentile. And seated us together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is our position, our identity, our, our legal position is at the right hand of God the Father as those who are members of the body of Christ. And then as you get into uh, verse uh, 14 of chapter 3, we read that he himself is our peace who made the both one. So you go from together, together, together to both, both, and we're both made uh, one new man, and we are both made a new body, And that foreshadows what we see in the verse we're studying in chapter 3, that we, at the end of verse 15, one new man, and in verse 16, we're both made one body. And then we see when we get down to verse 19 and 20, that we are uh, a new temple. Uh, Actually, that's in verse 22, a new temple for a dwelling place of God. That is so different from what you had in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, there is a temple in Jerusalem, and God dwelt in the midst of his people Israel. But now, it's not a physical building in a physical location. It is a spiritual entity, a spiritual building, a spiritual body of the church for God's dwelling within it. He not only indwells every believer... God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit indwell every believer, but he indwells this corporate entity of the church, which makes us so much different from every other body of believers. So we look at this, and he says, first of all, we are fellow heirs, fellow heirs. And that has to do with two different concepts in Scripture. There's two different categories of inheritance which we have studied many times in Romans 8.17. And I have put my translation of that verse up on the screen. And there Paul says, if children, that is, if we are children of God, if you're a believer, then we're heirs. Automatically, we are heirs. First, he says, on the one hand, it's a Greek construction here. It's not literally translated usually. There's a word put at the beginning, the Greek word men, and then later it uses the term de, and this should be translated on the one hand and then on the other hand. So that indicates there's two different things. On the one hand, we're heirs of God. That applies to every single believer. Every one of us is an heir of God. That means we have certain possessions that will be ours 
that are given to us in heaven. We will all have a resurrection body. We will all have eternal life. We will all have numerous other blessings that are shared by all those. We will have a tremendous amount of joy and peace, and uh, we will not ever think that we're missing out on anything. Our cup will be full and overflowing. Then there's a second category here, joint heirs with Christ. Now, some people think of these as synonymous But because of the Greek construction, it's on the one hand heirs of God, but on the other hand, joint heirs with Christ. Now, this is using the same word that is used here, but it's in a totally different context. And in this context, it's talking about what what is ours uh, in terms of our spiritual life and uh, in terms of our future rewards and blessings. Joint heirs with Christ, and it's qualified with the conditional clause, if indeed we suffer with him. So, being an heir of God is when you trust in Christ as Savior, you don't do anything. But this second category must be a second category because we only become a joint heir with Christ if we suffer with him. And some believers aren't going to suffer with Christ at all. They're happy to go to heaven but they don't want to deal with anything else. I've had some people say, I don't care if I end up in the gutters of the streets of gold as long as I'm in heaven. Well, that's not biblical. We are to pursue spiritual growth and we get rewards not because we want rewards and be greater than anybody else, but because we want to serve God to the maximum, to the best, to the best of our ability. So the first category is what all believers have in common. And the second is believers will have additional rewards and inheritance. So while we'll all have joy, we'll all have peace, we'll all have incredible things, and our cups will all overflow, some of us will have larger cups than others. Different capacity. And, you know, just like in this life, some people have an IQ of 180. I can't comprehend what that would be like, and it doesn't matter. I'm very happy with what I have. And somebody who's got a lesser IQ might be very happy with where they are. They don't know what they don't have. And, and it's a distinction. But, but this distinction is going to be based on our service, our growth in this life, and our the developing of the capacities to rule and reign with Christ in the future. So now there is this joint air, this airship together with Jews. And if you are, and this is a big controversy with Messianic Jews, by the way. But if you are a Jewish believer, if you're a racial ethnic Jew in this dispensation, when you trust in Christ, there's no longer that distinction between Jew and Gentile. And so you are a member of the body of Christ, even though ethnically and racially you are a physical descendant of of Abraham. But now your inheritance will not be in relation to that of Israel in the Old Testament, but it's in relation to the church. And so they're joint heirs together with Gentiles because they are in that one new man, that one new body. And then it goes on to say that, secondly, we're of the same body. That's what was stated earlier when we looked at verse 16 of chapter 2, is that we are fellow members of the same body. So we're in that body, and that body is the body of Christ. What an honor to be a member of the body of Christ, that when Christ physically went to heaven and ascended to heaven, it's replaced by this spiritual entity called his body. And he is the head. He is the authority. 
So we're of the same body with Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles together, and partakers, joint participants, are fellow partakers. Now, this is really a difficult, we don't have a word that we can quite use there to catch this concept. It's more than participants. It's, it's, in some passages, it's translated partakers, but we are joint partakers of what? I think we're partakers in other senses, but in this one, the focus is we're, we're fellow heirs of his promise. We are of the same body in relation to that promise and partakers of that promise. And that takes us back, if you recall, to verse 12 of chapter 2. In verse 11, Paul says that you once were Gentiles in the flesh. You were called the uncircumcision, but, but by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. And then he says, but at that time you were, and he listed five things which we studied. Number one, you were without Christ. You had no messianic hope. Second, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. The word for commonwealth is the word politua, which is a word from which we get our word politics. And it has to do with the political entity of Israel, the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. And if you were a Gentile, then you didn't reap the spiritual blessings of being in Israel. Because in Israel, on the Temple Mount, is the temple and the presence of God. And you didn't have that. So you're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenants of promise. And see... Those promises that are in the, in the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant are directed to Israel and not to us. But we reap benefits from them, tremendous benefits from them. And we are blessed by association with Abraham because of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 is that we become the spiritual seed of Abraham. Because we follow him by trusting in God and being justified because we have faith in God's promise. And at the end of Galatians chapter 3, in verses 27 and 28, Paul is talking about the baptism by the Holy Spirit. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ happens to every believer at the instant of salvation. We, God, the, uh, God the Son, Jesus Christ, uses the Holy Spirit to identify us according to Romans 3, 6 3, with his death, burial, and resurrection, so that we are entered into the body of Christ. We are cleansed, and we're entered into the body of Christ. And then we also receive, as a pledge, God the Holy Spirit who indwells each and every one of us. Now, you all have heard me teach that many, many times, but there's a lot of believers who don't understand that. And one of the reasons that, that I enjoy doing what I did this last week is because... There was this lady in, in the church where I was, and she had started coming to this church uh, about, I don't know, maybe I was last there a year and a half ago, and she was there then, so I think it was almost two years ago. And she came out of a charismatic Pentecostal background. And she was also working, I think she plays the organ at this other church. But she was beginning to have some concerns about some things that, that were being taught that she didn't quite understand. And so she started coming over to Tucson Bible Church. She'd come during the week. 
And after she visited a couple of times, she talked to uh, Pastor Hintz, and he was very honest with her. He said, well, you're going to find, we welcome you here. We're glad you can come. You'll enjoy the teaching of the the scriptures, but you're going to see that there's some differences. And so he outlined two or three of these differences. And so she's been coming more and more. And she was at the conference and went home, and she listened to everything Again, she got on the recording, listened to it all a second time. And then on Thursday, she went to the Dean Bible Ministries website, and she found a message that I had given on the the whole tongues issue, emphasizing that not only is tongues not a gift for today, it's not a sign of uh, a second blessing, and it is not associated with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that was something that in the Arminian theology, the Pentecostal camp, uh, that she was concerned about that she would lose the Holy Spirit if she committed certain sins. And she came up to me before class the last night, I believe it was, and she said, I want you to know, I listened to that message today, and I am leaving that church in January and coming here permanently. I realized that I received the Holy Spirit when I was saved, and that I'll never lose my salvation, and I'll never lose the Holy Spirit. You know, that makes everything worthwhile. Whatever everything is, you know, whatever difficulties, problems we have in life, nothing is more joyful than to realize that whatever you have and done, even one person gets saved or gets transformed by the teaching of the Word, it makes everything worthwhile. And so that was just a a great blessing to get an insight into that because I usually don't hear too many of those kinds of stories. But here we see in Galatians 3, 27 to 28, talking about the baptism by the Spirit, where now we're one. What he's saying is we're one in Christ. There's no longer a distinction between Jew and Greek, no longer a distinction between slave or free or male or female. It's not that uh, everybody uh, becomes gender confused or uh, if you were a slave that you automatically were set free because that never happened. What happens is that under the Jewish law, if you were a woman, you could only go as far as the courtyard of the women in the temple. If you were a slave, you couldn't get any closer. You couldn't get close. Only, only a free male Jew could go into the temple. Gentiles had to stay in the courtyard of the Gentiles. And so now we all have equal access, as Paul puts it here in Ephesians 2, we have equal access by one spirit. Uh, to the Father. And here he concludes this thought by saying in verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, not physically, but spiritually, because you have been justified by faith alone, just as Abraham was in Genesis 15:6, and heirs according to the promise. That's the same thing that he's talking about here. We are Uh, We are heirs of the promise, Jew and Gentile together, joint heirs. It's what we all will have in common uh, when we're in heaven. And so he says, in concluding this verse, he says that we are made fellow heirs of the same, we are the same heirship, the same body, the same participants of his promise. That is the promise of justification by faith alone. That's the promise that Abraham believed. And it is through the gospel. And the word for gospel is the good news. And the good news is that we are justified not by works which we have done, but according to his mercy. 
as I quote all the time from every morning before we start in Galatians 2.16, that we are not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. That's it. We can't be justified by the law. And by being justified by faith as Abraham was justified by faith in Romans chapter 4, 1 through 7, he says, Paul uses Abraham as the example that that's the good news of the gospel. We can't work for it. We can't earn it. We don't have to do all these things that some people think they have to do. You don't have to be sinless. You don't have to clean up your life. Uh, You don't have to uh, stop sinning. You can't stop sinning. Uh, We have a sin nature. That's never going to happen. But the gospel tells us that it's not our behavior that's the issue. It's what Christ did on the cross. That's the good news of the gospel. And then he's going to go on to say in verse 7, of which of this gospel I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God which was given to me. What was the gift that was given to him? His apostleship. We've already studied this in detail. That's the issue. And so when he comes to this point, he's, he's reminding them that, that the reason they shouldn't be discouraged is because his ministry is continuing. And that he is fulfilling the commission and the mission that God gave him. Now, we'll come back next time and we'll look at seven and eight because they go together even though they split. One concludes one paragraph. This is a transition into the next paragraph. And then we'll get into eight and nine. And it just takes us into the same topic but advances on it with more information. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're indeed grateful for your grace. We are grateful that our salvation, our spiritual life is not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon your grace and your goodness and what you've given for us. And salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And we pray that if there's anyone listening who's just not quite clear and just hasn't uh, caught the essence of the gospel, it has nothing to do with our sins. It has nothing to do with uh, what church we go to. It has nothing to do with any kind of ritual that we participate in. It is simply trusting in the promise that if we trust in Christ as Savior, that you will declare us justified and we will have eternal life, which will never be taken from us. We can never lose it because we did nothing to gain it. We can do nothing to lose it. And, Father, we pray that you would uh, encourage us, strengthen us by the Holy Spirit so that what we are learning about the distinctiveness of the church age believer, the wealth that we have in Christ, that we would be motivated to learn more about it, to study it more, and to uh, let that impact how we think about the situations in our lives, whatever adversity we we face, And just think about our understanding of who we are as believers in Christ and the wealth and riches that are ours. And may God, the Holy Spirit, use that to transform our understanding of who we are, no matter what our education may be, no matter what our background may be. We are all aristocrats in this glorious entity that is called the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And that we are on display, as Paul said back in the early part of Ephesians 2, we are on display before all of the angels as trophies of your grace. And Father, we pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.